beginning in uh, chapter 5. This is what the Word of God has to say. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes and stood, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Esther, Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is, what is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king, then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the, so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. As the, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to, half, to the half of my, of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases, please, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought uh, his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of, his, all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 6. On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherias. The king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, <laughs> Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his, wife, then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but he will surely fall, but you, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast. That Esther had prepared. When we began the series of Esther, we began with a sermon titled God's so God is Sovereign from the first two chapters of the book. And from those opening words of this testimony, we saw how God was sovereign over all of creation. And even though Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews felt like that they were out of control of their lives and that maybe God had forgotten them in a, very, in a foreign land, we, we, we talked about how even still God was sovereign and was bringing about his perfect will and his perfect timing to deliver his people. In the second sermon that I preached from this, from this book, I titled it God's Providence. And I talked, about, and that was from chapters two and three. And we talked about how God was working even through the, the wickedness of palace politics to bring about his will. We talked about the very ugliness of what was happening to Esther. And even in that, God was providentially working to provide for his people to be in the place he wanted them to fulfill his will. And then in the third sermon titled Faithful Obedience from chapter four. We looked at the testimony of Esther and her cousin Mordecai of being faithful and obedient to the call, of, the call of God in their life and trusting God with all the other things that befell them. So we ended that chapter with Esther saying those, those wonderful words that she was going to go before the king. And she said, if I perish, I perish. And you may remember that the law said that if you were not invited before the king, then the penalty for that was execution unless he extended his scepter to you. And so that's why when we begin this chapter, Esther's standing there in the doorway and she doesn't know whether or not the next moment will be the ending of her life or the receiving of her into the king's presence. Beginning in chapter 5, events begin to, to become quick. 
And so as you read through the end of the book, you'll find that things happen really quick. And so chapter 5 and 6, Esther uh, approaches the king. She's received by the king. She has a banquet. And then chapter 6, you have that wonderful flip-flop, unexpected turn of events where Haman thinks he's going to be honored, but instead he has to honor the very man that he hates with everything that he has. And then in the chapters that follow, we will see how God is unfolding and revealing and completing his intended will from the very beginning. This morning from these two chapters, five and six, I want us to look at the contrast, the difference between the arrogance and pride of Haman and the humility of Esther and Mordecai. Now, I'll say a little bit of a caveat here, and that is, Esther and Mordecai have been humbled. Now, I wish that all of us, when we woke up in the morning, just naturally, because of God's grace in our life, were just humble people. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the thing about us is even when we think we're humble, we get prideful about it, and we start telling people, you know, I'm really humble, and we ruin it to ourselves. We look at Haman, who is really unrestrained in his life because he's got so much power, he's got so much wealth, and that gives, that gives life to the arrogance and pride in his life. And so, but, but we see in contrast this Haman who is extremely prideful, arrogant, even to the point of opposing God and his will, contrasted with the humility of Esther and Mordecai, trusting God and in so doing, experiencing amazing grace. And so, just two things this morning. Number one, I want to talk about destructive pride. And then secondly, I want to talk about how we experience God's grace in the context of being humble before the Lord. But let's begin with destructive pride. And primarily, we're looking here at Haman and, and his life. And, and, and there are just a few things I want to point out about the destructiveness of pride in our life. And the very first one is, is that pride is absolutely never, ever, ever satisfied. I think it was Mick Jagger who said, I can't get no satisfaction. And that fits right here. Pride is absolutely never satisfied. There is a danger, I think, to miss some important things in this passage because we know the bad characters and the good characters. Now, if you know anything about this book, or even if you've just been introduced to it, you know that Haman is the bad guy. And in fact, there's some sort of sense of glee when Haman has to parade Mordecai around the square. You think, well, he's getting what he deserves. And I'm just telling you, it even gets worse for Haman later. And some of you, when you read that, will rightly rejoice. Haman gets what he deserves. He's the bad guy. So, But there's a danger when we, when we recognize who's good and who's bad in that we only identify with the good characters and we find no identity at all with the bad characters. And here's my warning to you. I think we have a lot in common with Haman. The sin of pride is not something that the, only the worst and most wicked people are given to. The sin of pride is a universal struggle of every man, woman, and child. Somebody today say amen. All right, so I know I'm preaching to people who need to hear this. All right. What made Haman's pride so offensive and destructive is that he had very few hindrances to the expression of his pride. Meaning that some of you are just as prideful as Haman, but you don't have the wealth or the political power to express it like he did. 
Haman was very prideful of his wealth and his power. And chapter 5, verse 11, he calls his wife, who would have known this already, and his friends, who probably already knew this. And I'm just making a guess here. This is not in Scripture. This is probably not the first time Haman has done this because pride sort of motivates us this way, but he calls him over probably for a little house party. And the main event of the house party is he wants to tell them how rich and important he is. Don't you love being invited to those parties? It begins with, hey, if you don't know this already, I'm kind of a big deal. Let me tell you why. And he tells them, man, let me tell you about how much wealth I've got. Let, let me show you how much money I got in my bank account. Can you imagine that one? Oh, that's really nice, Haman. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you how many boys I have, how many children I have. That was a sign of wealth in his day. Oh, that's great, Haman. It's not the first time you've shown us the entire family album. Okay, nice. And then he wants to talk about how many times he's been promoted, and particularly how he's been, pr been promoted above all the other officials in the court. Probably a story that they had heard over and over and over again. All these things meant that Haman was able to enjoy all the pleasures that this world had to offer. He was rich. His power was only second to the king. He could purchase anything he desired. He could command anything he wanted. But the destruction of pride begins with never being satisfied. So notice something here. Pride leads us to think that the next thing will satisfy our soul. So the next promotion, the next pay raise, the next accolade, the next trophy, the next championship, the next win, the next degree, whatever it is in your life that you think is going to satisfy your soul, pride leads you to think that it can, but it never will. Notice how Haman reacts to his wealth and power, how, excuse me, how he rejects his wealth and power because of Mordecai's refusal to fear and tremble before him. So here's the thing. Haman's just experienced the pinnacle of his career. He gets invited by Queen Esther to a party for just him and the king, and he rightly understands this is a pretty big deal. Nobody else is invited, just me, the king, and the queen. That's a pretty small group. And he's coming home pretty excited because he's going to call his family and friends together to tell them of his new accolade, of his new achievement in his world. And on his way out of the palace, he passes by Mordecai. Now, let's get this in perspective. Haman is number two in the nation, in the, in the empire, likely one of the, the largest, most powerful empires of the day. He's number two in this world, and Mordecai is a refugee from another country working as probably like a clerk in some lower-level um, uh, palace job, and he passes by Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to tremble in front of him, and, and, and refuses to give him the honor that he thinks he's due. And when he gets home and he tells his family of all of his wealth and all of his achievements and all the things that he has, then he says, and it's worthless to me because the clerk Mordecai won't tremble in front of me. That's messed up. The point is not that Haman should just get over it or shouldn't worry about Mordecai or should just enjoy his wealth and power. The point is that all those who are given to pride and arrogance will never be satisfied. There's never enough honor. There's never enough wealth. There's never enough of anything to satisfy what you think you need and must have. Friends, listen to me. Satisfaction comes from resting in the providence of God. 
resting in how God has provided for you. How often have we looked at how the wealth that God has given us and go, oh, I wish I had something else. That'll never satisfy you. Satisfaction looks at what God has provided and said, oh, amazing grace that God would give me this. Satisfaction comes from resting in the providence of God, in the protection of God. God is great and mighty, and he provides for me. Satisfaction comes from resting in the value that is found in the redemption of the cross. What makes me important is not my bank account, and it's not my accolades, and it's not my title. What makes me important is that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who was before, was, was, died for me on the cross that I might live with him in eternity. And that's better than anything that'll be behind my name, in front of my name, or in my bank account. Somebody say amen. Pride will never satisfy no matter how much wealth, power, or fame you acquire. Now listen to me carefully. Pride is idol worship. Pride is idol worship. The most alluring idol of all for man is the idol of ourselves. We will worship ourselves before we'll worship anything else. In the foolishness of flesh, of our flesh, we desire to elevate ourselves to the position of greatest importance and worship it. Haman is consumed with personal advancement and position. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he, recount, he recounts how he had advanced above all the other servants of the king. In verse 12, he sees the invitation of Esther as evidence of his greatness and importance. He says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king as well. In other words, two days in a row. When Haman is asked by the king how someone whom the king wishes to honor should be rewarded, he assumes, that always gets you in trouble, by the way, but he assumes that he alone must be the person that, uh, that, that is going to be honored and prescribes the most elaborate celebration. Haman cannot imagine anybody that the king would want to honor more than himself. In fact, the Bible says so in chapter 6, verse 6, Haman said to himself, thinking to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman is saying even to his own heart and mind, I'm a big deal even to myself. Friends, pride leads you to elevate yourself to the position of greatest importance. It leads you to judging all things by how they advance or hinder your personal advancement. And it leads you to thinking only of your own desires. Now, friends, no one... No one can bow in worship before the Lord while standing in pride. No one can receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus while declaring they are not dependent upon anyone. Pride is idol worship. To surrender your life to the Lord requires that all idols be put away, and that you throw yourself on the cross alone for salvation. And that includes the idol of yourself. Pride is destructive because it's never satisfied. It leads you to idol worship. And ultimately, it's built on, faulty, on a faulty foundation. 
Edward Moat declared, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But pride will lead you in the very opposite direction. It is built on the faulty foundation of the wealth of this world, the power of man, the opinions of man, and the values and the celebrations of man. And the thing about all of those things are, they don't last. They don't even last through one generation, much century after century. Wealth is fleeting. The power of man fails. The opinions of man change. What the world values is like the wind. It changes constantly and cannot be held. This destruction is both physical and spiritual. Pride will tempt you to trust in the weak things of this world that eventually will fail you. And pride will tempt you to reject the only hope of salvation, which is in Jesus Christ alone. Friends, pride is sin. Listen to me. Listen to me carefully here. Pride is sin. It's not something to laugh about. It's not something to tolerate. It's not something just to accommodate. It is sin. And all sin leads to destruction both physical and spiritual. And Haman, if you don't know it already, is heading headlong into destruction, both physical and spiritual. He is opposing the God of all creation, and you never win in that fight. Now, in contrast to the destructive sin that Haman is experiencing, we have a testimony of grace in humility. And the reason why I phrase it that way is because I want you to see how Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews are experiencing the grace of God, receiving what they, what they did not earn or deserve. They're receiving the grace of God in the context of living in their humility. Two things here. First is that when you are humble, it allows or provides room for God to work. Now, I'm not saying God can't work if you're prideful. God will, God will accomplish his will no matter what. But what I'm saying is when you're prideful and arrogant, it's all about you and what you can accomplish. So you're working, you're doing, you're accomplishing. But in humility, it provides room in your heart, in your mind, and in your life for God to work. And there are two places in these two chapters where I see this principle. The first is Esther going before the king and choosing to be patient in her request. It's an interesting way that she approaches the king. And then the second way is I see Mordecai continuing to work, even though he had not been properly honored by the king for his uh, service of the king of thwarting an assassination attempt. And he was even being opposed by the king's number two, who was actively trying to, to thwart him, to kill him, and to kill his people. When we see a need or a crisis, we typically desire God to act right then. If right now you've got a great need in your life, you've got a crisis in your life, you've got something you don't know the answer to, your prayer life probably has an urgency that it doesn't have in other days. And the urgency is motivated by, God, you've got to do something right now. If you don't act right now, God, all's going to be lost. It's very hard to understand why God chooses to wait when we think there is an urgent need. But notice how Esther and Mordecai respond. 
In chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, Mordecai could have become angry and frustrated by being ignored by the king. If you don't remember what happened in chapter 2, there was a plot against the king. Mordecai heard about it, and he informed the necessary channels to, to get it to the king's notice, and the plot was uncovered, and the king was saved. In Persian custom and law, the response to that should have been a very elaborate and um, uh, dramatic celebration and honoring of Mordecai. That's why in chapter 6 we see the king asking, what do we do for this guy? Tell me what we did. And when he finds out nothing was done, it's understood this is not right. We, we did not do what we were supposed to do. And it could have been that, that Mordecai could have been frustrated in those days. Man, I did this great thing for you. I served you well, and you didn't remember me. You didn't think about me. You didn't give me what was due. He could have grown bitter. He could have said, well, fine. And I won't do anything else for the kingdom. In fact, I, what I do, do, I'll do as sorry and as lazily and as half-heartedly as I can. But for all we know, Mordecai went back to work and kept working. Not knowing why God allowed that to happen, not sure why God did not give him what he thought he was due when he was due, but he went back to work. We know God was doing something, but it wasn't when Mordecai wanted it to happen. It was when God wanted it to happen to fulfill his will. Esther. Esther could have used her audience with the king to plead her case and to accuse Haman. So she goes up and she stands in the doorway of the king. She doesn't know. If the king says, why are you here? You shouldn't be here. She dies. If he extends his scepter to her, then she lives. And he, he sends it to her. And the Bible even says that she found favor in his sight. And he says to her, what do you want, Esther? Ask what you asked for up to half my kingdom. Now, don't think that's meaning she could ask for literally half the kingdom, but I think that's, a, that's an idiom for saying, whatever you ask, I'm going to do for you, which is a pretty sweet deal when the king asks that of you. Now, if it had been me, my temptation would have been to just spill everything I knew right then. Oh, king, let me tell you what's happening. That Haman's trying to kill me. He's trying to kill my cousin. He's trying to kill all my people. What does she do? In humility and in patience, she says, I'd like to serve you tonight a meal, have a banquet for you. At the end of that, that evening, the king says, is pleased with Esther. And he goes, listen, tell me what you want. Up to half my kingdom, whatever you want, queen, it is yours. And she says, here's what I want. Can we do this again tomorrow night? Can I serve you again, you and Haman? And at the end of that night, if it pleases you, then, then, I'll, then I'll tell you what's really on my heart. Both acted with humble patience, waiting on God to move, trusting in God's timing. And their humble patience gave room for God to act. Mordecai would be celebrated, but not because he demanded it, but because the king desired it. God was using the timing to do more than to give Mordecai a good day and a promotion at work. God was using the timing to both deliver his people and to destroy their enemy, Haman. Esther would not make her concerns known to the king until she had humbly served both the king and Haman twice. God was using the timing to do more than give Esther an audience with the king without losing her life. God was using the timing to both deliver his people and destroy their enemy, Haman. Humility requires your wait on the Lord. 
Humility requires that you say to God, your will be done, not my own. Humility requires that you be patient on God to act according to his will and his perfect timing. Living in this humility makes room in your life for God to move and to work. And dear friends, I'm telling you, God can do far greater things than you could ever imagine doing him on your own work and in your own time. Humbly let God move and act in your life as he sees fit, not as you demand. And then secondly, this humility that they live out is a testimony of faith. Where pride is a testimony of idol worship, humility is a testimony of faith. Now there are two ways humility is a testimony of faith here. Trusting God to raise up and to, to, to rise them up and to protect them, and to recognizing and recognizing that they are totally dependent upon God. Now the first trusting God to, to raise them up out of their humble estate and to protect them, I think we see most dramatically through, through Esther. So in chapter 4, verse 16, she, she decides to approach the king without the invitation, and she boldly says, if I perish, I perish. In the first chapter, in the first verses of chapter 5, Esther follows through with the, and approaches the king without an invitation, meaning... That, it, that he does, if he does not extend a welcome through holding his scepter to her, she will suffer death at the hand of, her, of, of the executioner. The king does indeed receive her. And notice how the Bible phrases it, because I think this is important. The Bible uses a phrase that reminds us. In fact, when you read this phrase, it, I think, is intended to alert your mind and your heart to what had come earlier in this testimony in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And when we read, she won favor. I think this is more than just the king was pleased to see her. I think this is pointing to the sovereign power of God to prepare the heart of the king to receive her. I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that before Esther even got up that morning and put on the, the, the royal robes. In fact, I think before the foundations of the world, God had prepared this moment and that king's heart and mind that when she stood in the doorway, he received her, not because he thought he needed to talk to the queen, but because God had ordained this moment for the deliverance of his people. This is about God working, not man working. In humility, Esther put her very life in the hands of God and trusted that he would provide and protect her. She was received by the king not because he was having a good day, not because he liked what Esther was wearing that day, but because God had declared it and decreed it. In her humility, Esther gives us a beautiful testimony of faith that God is able to accomplish his will. I think we see the second testimony recognizing our total dependence on God through Mordecai. So these were dangerous days for the Jews. You may remember the decree had already gone out that on a, in a particular day on the 12th month that all of the Jews, men, women, uh, boys and girls, were to be murdered and that all of their possessions were to be, were to be looted and stolen. That was still upcoming but, but, Mordecai, but Haman's not willing to wait on Mordecai for that day, so he's already built gallows for the next day to, to hang Mordecai on. Yet when Mordecai is confronted by Haman, he doesn't rise or tremble before him. I don't think this is because he's trying to offend Haman. I think this is because he does not think that help or deliverance will come through. 
Haman. You can understand the temptation. Haman's the second most powerful person in the world. If you could get on his good side, maybe you could survive the day. But I think we see in in Mordecai's humility to just trust the Lord and and trust that that, that they were totally dependent upon God for deliverance, that it ain't going to come through Haman. It's going to come through God alone. Mordecai knew that help would come only through God, so he was totally and completely dependent upon the Lord for deliverance. Friends, listen to me. This is always true. But only in humility do we recognize and testify to it. It seems that even Haman's wife sees the power of God when she rightly predicts that Haman will fall before Mordecai. It's an amazing moment in the testimony. We read by it quickly. Remember, she probably heard Haman brag about his wealth and his power more than anybody else around. Can you imagine? She probably could have retold that story uh, verbatim. Yes, honey, I know how much power you've got. Yes, sweetheart, I know. So, but she's got a word of prediction here. She says uh, in verse, uh, verse 13, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Whether she understands the fullness of what she's saying, she's saying, Brother, you opposed Mordecai, who is a Jew, the people of the living God, and if, he, if you've already begun to fall, it's going to get worse from here. Not good. In the New Testament, James says it this way, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride can do some very destructive things to us, and one of the things it does is that it blinds us to our own need and our own danger. In 1911, there was a there was a, a great effort to design parachutes that could be used and could be worn by pilots that were operating these new things called aeroplanes. And as airplanes were flying higher and higher and crashing more and more, there was a great desire to develop a parachute that could safely deposit a pilot onto the ground in the event that their aircraft crashed. On February the 2nd of that year, a guy by the name of Gaston Hervieux climbed up to the very top of the Eiffel Tower to test a parachute for pilots. He checked the wind, he took a nervous breath, and he began his test. His silk parachute filled with air then sailed safely to the ground, and it was a success. But the significance about that test was, Hervieux did not jump himself. He put a dummy there, same weight and dimensions of a person, and threw it off the Eiffel Tower, and it was a successful test. There was a man watching that test that day by the name of Franz Reichhilt. He was an Austrian tailor, and he was also trying to develop his own parachute. And he thought it was absolutely ridiculous to test a parachute with a dummy. So he begins to make plans to test his own parachute. And so on the the next year, in fact, February the 4th, 1912, he too arrived at the Eiffel Tower. He goes to the top. 
he straps on his parachute and he prepares to launch himself off and prove to the world he's got the superior parachute. Now, in that intervening year, the folks who knew about parachutes, and I do not, had told him that he didn't have enough surface area in his parachute. Told him he didn't have enough uh, um, um, width and high, uh, length and all those sort of things, that the, that the weight to parachute ratio wasn't enough and that he would, he would not survive such a fall. In fact, um, Franz himself should have known that because he had tested a couple of times jumping out of third story windows and those sort of things. Had even broken a leg because he had yet to have a successful jump with his parachute. But in his pride and in his arrogance, he was confident that all the world was wrong and he was right. So February 4th, 1912, he ascends the Eiffel Tower and he jumped off with his parachute attached to his back. Reichelk fell for about four seconds. For the entirety of the four seconds, he was accelerating constantly until he hit the ground at approximately 60 miles an hour. He made a cloud of frost and dust and a dent in the ground six inches deep. And in his pride and in his arrogance, he was killed instantly. He tried to attempt to impose his will over and against the laws of gravity. And you usually lose when you do that. Haman, in his pride and arrogance, attempted to impose his will against the will of the living God, and he lost. And friends, in our arrogance and pride, we do the exact same thing. We, we ignore the law of God, and we attempt to impose our will, our desires, and our way even against the will and the purpose of the living. In these two chapters, as the will of God begins to unfold to deliver God's people from the murderous desires of Haman, we see a beautiful testimony in contrast of the destruction of pride and the grace that we find in humility. And dear friends, I just know the reality of the human heart is there are some of you this morning that are like Haman or like Reichelt, who in pride and arrogance are intensely pursuing a destructive direction. My plea for you this morning is to humble yourself before the living God. Make room in your life for God to, to move and act. Bear a testimony that you trust God with all things. I guarantee you there is much more grace there than you'll ever find in your pride and arrogance. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. 
www.centralbaptistchurch.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.